Not Old Better Show. Today's show is brought to you by NordVPN and Inside Tracker. As part of our Healthy Aging Month Art of Living interview series, we have a great interview with Dr. Ryan Glatt. Dr. Ryan Glatt is a psychometrist and brain health coach at the Brain Health Center in the Pacific Neuroscience Institute. With a strong background in exercise science and human health, Ryan Glatt develops curricula specifically targeted towards those with dementia, Parkinson's disease, autism spectrum disorders, and traumatic brain injury coaching individuals towards optimum brain health. We will be discussing brain health, cognitive decline, specific exercises to prevent cognitive decline, including what Ryan Glatt refers to as exergaming, and the modern solutions that come from video game playing. For those of us in the Not Old Better Show audience, so please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, Brain Health Director from the Pacific Neuroscience Institute, Dr. Ryan Glatt. Ryan Glatt, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Paul. Good to talk to you this morning. I know we're talking across the country very early your time, and so I appreciate the uh, the chance to catch up with you. I've got a bunch of questions for you. I think what you do is really amazing. You really are a brain health coach, but you really fulfill this role within kind of the industry of science, neuroscience, specifically exercise neuroscience. So how did you get into that initially, the field of exercise neuroscience? Yeah, it wasn't a linear pathway. It was a lot of uh, exploration. I'll say that much. Uh, I started in personal training about 11 years ago, maybe coming on 12, um, when I saw my mother go through kidney disease and a leg amputation uh, and go through physical therapy. And I saw what she had with this physical therapist, this therapeutic alliance that got her to walk again. And that really inspired me to pursue physical therapy. In addition, there was a lot of health issues within my family. and. Um, mostly weight gain and uh, diabetes and mental health issues. And I wanted to pursue something that would help people be healthy. And so personal training was a nice place to start, kind of a low barrier to entry, uh, to experience working with other people using fitness and exercise um, while going through school to apply to physical therapy school. I eventually did not get in. Um, I applied outside the country. I lived abroad for a little bit in West Africa, doing some physical therapy projects there. And then I came home after getting rejected from uh, an international school due to a visa issue and became a massage therapist. And then about two years into my massage therapy profession, I saw that there was a need for health coaching, but not just health coaching in the sense of weight loss, which is what a lot of people typically think of when they think of health coaching, but really helping people improve their brain health. I saw that individuals were, uh, a lot of them were in pain, uh, co concurrently, concurrently with stress or mental health issues. Uh, maybe they had issues maintaining the exercises and the regimen that I would give them. They had issues with memory. And I just saw, okay, maybe their brains aren't working so well. It's not just about their body, but maybe something in their brain needs a little bit of a boost as well. And so I started to dive into that. And I said, oh my gosh, look at this amazing research on exercise in the brain. Is anyone making the link between the problem and the solution and then helping them change their behavior, which is really one of the things that health coaching is great for, is changing behavior to help them achieve their goals. And is anyone educating these people about the importance of the brain in the role of bodily health uh, and vice versa? And so 
I started to look into what contributes to brain health, which we'll talk about, but I really wanted to help people make a change in their lives that made a deeper impact on their longevity. And in working with older adults, which is kind of, it sort of became my niche, um, is that we, we talk about functional training and functional training being, you know, being able to play with your grandkids. A lot of people give that sort of uh, metaphor of being able to play with your grandkids. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Um, the, the metaphor I like to give is being able to remember your grandkids' names. That's why we're doing what we're doing. It's a very impactful, both are very impactful, right? But there seems to have this uh, impactful plus to it that really hits the core of what it means or what we think it means to be human. And so when I kind of got my hands on this concept of being able to coach people towards optimal brain health with various lifestyle interventions, which is not new, uh, by the way, it's not like I invented that stuff. It's just existing research that was shown to be, uh, you know, lifestyle factors shown to be impactful on brain health. No one was making the connection in the field of personal training or health coaching. So I just kind of niched myself there um, and continued to pursue education rigorously. I completed a master's in applied neuroscience from King's College of London. I'm sort of an education addict and I try to find as many different courses as possible that help me achieve my mission of just improving the human condition and, the, and those that I serve. Um, and then that ended me up at the Pacific Brain Health Center in Santa Monica, California where I currently work and I am a brain health coach, but I also run a brain gym, which I'm sure we'll talk about extensively. So that's kind of how I got here. Good. Well, there, you know, you've traveled a lot. You've, you've had numerous, uh, positions. I think, I think there are lots of paths to success and currently you're finding a great deal of success as a brain health coach. Tell us, tell us what, what exactly is a brain health coach? Yeah, so I, I alluded to a couple parts of the definition, but a brain health coach, well, I think it's first important to define a health coach. A health coach is an individual that, uh, th this is sort of a, a what I call a squishy definition, but it's individuals who hold their clients in uh, absolute positive regard, meaning that they are there to help facilitate their the journey of a client. And this could be life coaching, this could be executive coaching, this could be health coaching. So I'm speaking specifically within health coaching. So we're there to facilitate the health and wellness journey of certain individuals. A brain health coach facilitates uh, certain lifestyle behaviors for brain health goals. So it's actually very similar. It's just very focused on brain health. So there's a lot of different behaviors that research is starting to find uh, and has already found uh, that is a contributor to brain health. And so many people don't check off all the boxes uh, because there's such a epidemic of cognitive decline. Uh, Alzheimer's disease rates are growing to the millions. Um, and so there's a huge, huge public health issue with this. And as we would uh, mobilize or attempt to mobilize the fitness professions and the health coaching professions to address things like diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular conditions, we need to do the same with cognitive decline. Um, so a brain health coach addresses the behavior change aspect of that. Well, thank you for that. You use the term cognitive decline. How, how do we prevent that? Yeah, well, I think it's helpful to define what it is, that everyone's on a curve for aging. And this is true for every part of your body, every organ. Uh, and the brain is just an organ. A lot of people worship the brain. Certainly, it's one, one of the things that we think makes us human. Um, but we don't worship the kidneys like we worship the brain. Uh, certainly 
the brain we believe holds consciousness and you know that's a big debate and what does it contribute to what it means to be human and everyone's you know deathly afraid of dementia and maybe it's in their family and maybe they have a friend of a friend or a family member that has it so people are very motivated to maintain their mental faculties their sense of self um, it's sort of a, a, a nightmare for many people to lose that. And so there's a lot of great documentaries on how that's not actually true. Even persons with dementia maintain who they are in many ways. And, and it's just not communicated as we typically uh, see in a, in a common sense. But, um, you know, regardless, uh, regardless of the uh, efforts to humanize cognitive decline, Cognitive decline is something common, and the question is, what's normal and what's abnormal? So forgetting your keys uh, every now and again or forgetting to pay a bill a few times is fine, or for you know having trouble having some verbal fluency, remembering someone's name once in a while, that's normal. But to have something that's recurrent and it happens all the time and it's getting worse, uh, probably you know, when I, we say worse over what period of time, you know, a couple of years, this and that, that's probably something to be concerned of. In fact, any older adult, uh, 65 or older, should be getting a memory evaluation of some kind. Um, that's a World Health Organization uh, mandate, is that everybody should be getting some sort of cognitive assessment, just like you get blood work, just like you get a colonoscopy. Uh, you want to be able to see where your brain is at. But co cognitive decline is something that can be slowed or prevented. But there's this curve, and the trajectory of that curve is dependent on a concept called cognitive reserve. And this concept, it's actually a theory. It's like a mental gas tank for your brain. So the more full this gas tank is, the longer your trajectory exists, uh, or, or lasts for rather. The, the, the less gas in that tank, the steeper your trajectory might be. In addition, that's compounded by genetics, environment, and all sorts of things. But there's various behaviors that go into cognitive reserve. Um, one of the biggest ones is modifiable health factors. Uh, that includes blood pressure management to managing cholesterol, all the way to exercising, sleep, stress, uh, nutrition. All of these things are modifiable health factors that contribute to improved cognition. Um, I mostly focus on exercise for, for various reasons. One, I'm an exercise professional, but two, I find it's one of the most evidence-based interventions that's talked about the least. And so I'll, I'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, I just want to finish the other aspects of cognitive reserve. Level of education seems to contribute to cognitive reserve, although there's some, uh, just because you have a PhD does not mean you do not get dementia. I, I think about 30%, maybe more, of my patient population that I work with is a doctor or has a PhD. So it doesn't necessarily, and they have dementia or mild cognitive impairment. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're not going to have dementia just because you have a PhD. But educational attainment and the process of learning does seem to be helpful. We just don't know to which degree. Um, then social stimulation and social contact, positive mood states, maintaining you know good mental health, and novel and stimulating experiences and cognitive stimulation as well as cognitive training. All these things uh, seem to contribute to cognitive reserve. The degrees in which they do is variable, and we're still learning about that. Um, but if I was to you know, start to check off the boxes in a particular order, 
I usually tell people exercise because it accomplishes so many things. It accomplishes stress management. It helps with sleep. It helps with quality of life. And if you're doing exercise in a way that's social, you're checking off that social box. You're going to feel better. So you get that positive mood state. If you're doing exercise that's novel and it's stimulating, you're checking off that box. And if you're also doing exercise that's cognitively demanding, you're checking off that box. So I like to use exercise as a medium for achieving as many of those elements of cognitive reserve as possible. It doesn't mean it's all about exercise and there's many days where we don't exercise at all, but we might be physically active or we might not. And that's totally okay. There's a lot of brain healthy behaviors you can have regardless of that. Um, But the idea is the more of these boxes we're checking off, the more we can contribute to cognitive reserve and hopefully delay that cognitive decline, slow it down, extend that trajectory, if you will. Well, we talk an awful lot on on uh, the Not All Better Show about exercise. We do get we, we touch on this idea of exercise and its role throughout the body. Most of our audiences over age fifty five. I'm sixty four, and I, I certainly am thinking about these subjects personally. And I know many in our audience are. What what is it that we we older adults can do? about our cognitive reserve and about brain health? Do we even do we even have any options as we kind of get uh, past the age of 65? Is it just pure decline from that point on? You know, that's a great point. I wouldn't say it's pure decline. I think the, the trajectory of your decline is dependent on all of those factors we discussed. Um, and so there's, but there's additional genetic factors. There's comorbidities. Do you have an existing health condition like high blood pressure, uh, do you have uh, cancer? Were you treated for cancer? Are you a survivor? Do you have um, mental health issues? Or are you experiencing changes in your mood? I mean, all of these things are, are you know, relevant to brain health because the brain is the most sensitive end organ in your body. And so in order to quantify and understand your own individual trajectory, it's not about age-related beliefs. It's about going to a medical doctor, a neurologist, a psychologist, a neuropsychologist, particularly to assess cognition, a psychiatrist, a geriatric psychiatrist. This is the team we have at the center. We're one of those or just your GP and say, who can you refer me to to assess my memory? That is important. So we can actually get measures and diagnostics on where you are. Are you in the normal percentile of aging? Are you below? Are you above? In which areas? You know, looking at cognitive testing to see where's your memory, your attention, your processing speed, your executive functioning. What about your brain? What's the size? What's the function? There's you know, several different types of tests that can be used in order to, to glean that information. And so before saying you know, at a certain age, it's pure cognitive decline, I would completely disagree, but it does depend. And in order to figure out where you're at, you should get that clinical workup or at least one element of it to better understand where you're at. But there's also these negative age-related beliefs about, oh, it's normal to lose your memory as you age. That's not normal. And the problem is dementia is so common, Alzheimer's is so common, that many people have thought or have begun to thought that it is normal, but it's actually not. And there's so many people that say, oh, well, my mom, she was a big runner and she still got it, so it's hopeless. A lot of people come to that sort of conclusion but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's true at all. We have to ask more. We have to measure more. And it's not normal to have cognitive impairment beyond normal cognitive impairment, which is slight changes in processing speed. 
slight changes in certain types of memory, slight changes in certain types of complex attention, for instance, or slight changes in verbal fluency at times. It depends on which cognitive ability, but just like our body ages, so does our brain, but just like we can offset the aging of the body with healthy lifestyle as we can the brain. It doesn't mean we go in reverse. We don't go up the hill, we, but we slow down that trajectory. And it is possible to feel better now than you have in years, uh, many years, for instance. And I think it's never too late in order for individuals to experience uh, positive benefits to their brain health, even if they have cognitive decline. But the degree in which they experience those benefits is different and which benefits. So when I say even people with cognitive decline can experience benefits, even if that person has chronic neurodegenerative condition like dementia and it's severe, what can we do to improve their quality of life? For someone like you, Paul, I'd say, what can we do to improve your current cognition and or slow down any cognitive decline for you? And so that's the approach I would take. And it depends where you're at in that trajectory. So we have what I call, not what I call, but what is called the worried well, uh, which is individuals such as yourself who is worried about preventing cognitive decline. And the level of that worry is typically modified by known or unknown risk factors. Uh, maybe someone in your family has it. Maybe your mom had dementia, for instance. That will increase your worry. Or the more you age, the more you might be worried. Um, then, then there's subjective cognitive decline. Subjective cognitive decline is I've noticed a change in my cognition, my memory, my attention, my speed of processing, whatever it might be, but it's not that bad. I could brush it off, and some people do, or I could do something about it, and some people do, or some people don't. And then the next stage is mild cognitive impairment. This is a diagnosable condition. It's a middle stage between I realize something's changing, then to I, I think other people realize some things are changing, and it's a mid-stage between subjective cognitive decline and dementia. That's mild cognitive impairment. That has to be diagnosed. That's not something you just say you have. Um, and the dementia is diagnosed, and that's sort of defined as a, as a loss of activities of daily living. Um, there's different ways of assessing Alzheimer's pathology with a PET scan and an MRI and cognitive testing uh, and stuff like that. So th those are the different stages of that cognitive trajectory. Most of the people listening to this are probably worried well, I would imagine, and maybe subjective cognitive decline. Maybe you've noticed a change. That is the impetus for seeking out additional testing to really see where you're at. But there's a whole spectrum of going about this. There's the there's the left side of the spectrum where it's people who are extremely anxious about anything, just like they forgot their keys once. And they said, oh my gosh, I have dementia. That's one extreme. The other end of that extreme is complete ignorance. I'm, I, there's nothing I can do about my brain. Memory decline is normal. Dementia is inevitable. It's just age. That's the other side of the spectrum. We need to be somewhere in the middle. And I often find it's a negotiation of knowledge and emotions to get to that middle point. And there has been research showing that positive age-related beliefs do actually help with preventing cognitive decline. There was a study that showed individuals in the senior living community who had negative age-related age beliefs had a 50%, about a 50% greater chance of developing dementia than those with positive age-related beliefs. And this isn't like a spiritual workshop, oh, just believe in yourself. It's actually, it, it makes sense because if you believe something can be done, the likelihood that you're going to do something is increased. So if you believe nothing can be done, you'll do nothing. 
right? So if we go over all those cognitive reserve elements, it makes sense to believe that there's something you can do so that you do do something about it. And that is true. We'll be right back with Ryan Glad from the Pacific Neuroscience Institute, and we will be talking about extra gaming, neuromotor control, and a lot more. So please stay tuned. Hi, it's Paul. We're going to just take a quick break here to mention our sponsors. Today's show, of course, is made possible by NordVPN. Now, don't get worried. <laughs> We're going to sort out the name and what they do right now. Plus, I think this is the most important part. Not old, better show audience get a special deal. Hint. It's 73% off. That's right, 73% off when you use the NOB exclusive code on NordVPN products. So stay tuned to this. (laughs) You know, all my work is online right now related to my podcast and my radio show. And I have to tell you, because I rely on technology for my livelihood, I used to be very nervous about passwords, security, and hackers breaking into my home network and stopping me from doing my business, uploading my shows for you all. Now I'm a NordVPN customer and I'm not worried in the least. You've heard the term encrypted and that's what the NordVPN does to your data so others can't hack it, but they can't easily read it either. The NordVPN encrypted format gives you a great deal of protection and assurance that your data is protected, secure, and theft-free. There's a ton of peace of mind that comes from using a secure system to protect yourself online, and NordVPN is the best. Now, Not Old Better Show audience can go to nordvpn.com slash NOB and use the code NOB at checkout to get 73% off of a two-year plan Plus, you get four bonus months for free. Now, be quick about this because the offer is for a limited time only. You know, there is a 30-day money-back guarantee if NordVPN is not for you. So there's no risk because they're so confident about their service and you should be too. So remember, go to nordvpn.com slash NOB. All of this is going to be in our show notes. Use that code NOB at checkout. Get 73% off of a two-year plan four bonus months for free. This is just a great deal. You know, when you do what you love, like running, like racing, like enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for life. Our sponsor today, Inside Tracker, can help. Inside Tracker, our sponsor today, was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Using their patented algorithm, Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you and to offer you science backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. This is just an awesome product. Then, Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day, every step of the way toward reaching your performance goals and living a longer, healthier, happier life. It's customizable. It's simple. It's based on you. And now for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com slash NOB. That's insidetracker.com slash NOB. All of this will be in our show notes to get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker product line in their store. You got to check it out. And we're back with Dr. Ryan Glatt from the Pacific Neuroscience Institute. Dr. Glatt studies brain health and in specific Xer Gaming. We're going to talk about that and a lot more, so stay tuned. We are with Ryan Glatt. Ryan Glatt is a widely respected 
health professional focused on brain health and health neuroscience. Ryan Glatt's joining us today from California. It's good to be talking with you again, uh, Ryan Glatt. And you mentioned John Rady. We've interviewed John Rady before on the program, and our audience knows him well. And um, he's highly regarded and highly respected, just as as you are. You, you talk a little bit about this neuromotor uh, term. Maybe define that and and then put that in kind of context with John Rady because he's really, he's been almost a, a bit of a pioneer on some of these subjects. Absolutely. Yeah. He's actually, his book Spark is actually what got me into this. Um, and I think it's an amazing book. And I think it really opened people's eyes to the benefits of exercise on the brain. What I'm realizing is that it's not a surprise to most people. I think 80% of the people I talk to are not surprised or already know that exercise is good for the brain. So I'm really happy that he's been a big contributor to that awareness, um, as have you know different organizations like the World Health Organization, other researchers, other people speaking on the stage, like Dr. Wendy Suzuki. All of that's incredibly important. What I'm finding is it's no, it's no longer just the knowledge, it's the practice. So common knowledge is not common practice, and that's the crux of, of health coaching. And so you know that leafy greens are probably good for you. We all know. I don't think this is a – could you find anyone that would disagree with you? There might be some people in the keto world or the, the carnivore world, and I'm not talking about extreme diets, but I think most people would agree, right? It's not going to be a shocker. It's actually the practice of that behavior. And because of that, that's what I see the gap being is actually putting a plan together for people in order to actually achieve better brain health is is what I see being needed. Good. Good. Well, you refer to skill learning and hand-eye coordination and and kind of coordinating movements. I, I had a we and and I, I just loved it. You're gonna have I, to I define that, that, Paul, for people. New- <laughs> had a Wii. Yeah. So <laughs> Wii, of course, the Wii, the nin- I, I had the Nintendo Wii uh, game console, uh, and I had a whole bunch of Wii, and this is Wii spelled W-I-I from Nintendo, a whole bunch of Wii sports yes. games. And they were great. I don't know that they're made or being released as new any longer, but I, I, I do know that you can get them still. I know you're very passionate about uh, video games and and extra games in in uh, specifically. So maybe tell us a little bit about the use of extra yeah. gaming and um, some of the modern kind of you know current examples. Because again, I, I don't think that the Wii from Nintendo is uh, is being made available any longer. Maybe some of the games aren't. But but uh, this is a great system. And I, I loved using it because it allowed me to do some dance, it allowed me to use yep. some tennis. I could use it with my two boys. It was very intergener- you know, intergenerational, a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. So though you can still get a Nintendo Wii and th- this area of extra gaming is great because you know who doesn't want to have fun and move at the same time? It's not for everybody, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's for a lot of people. A lot of people really enjoy this concept. Mm-hmm. So Extra gaming is just active video games. And actually, this has been around for a long time. Prior to the Nintendo Wii, there's a game called Dance Dance Revolution. And mm-hmm. you may remember it in arcades. It's got the four arrows pointing up, down, left, and right. It's got this kind of techno Japanese music where you're in your stepping on the arrows as they go up the screen. And this, as this started to sort of go away from, you know, common use in households and arcades, I mean, still in arcades, um, 
it, it started to permeate the rehab professions. People with uh, like rehabilitation scientists and researchers and, and clinicians like physical therapists and occupational therapists started to look at this and say, this is a great way to get people to move and get their cognitive and get their motor and get their balance and get their cardio. And so as the general consumer market kind of said, okay, this is getting old, it kind of got handed off to the, the rehabilitation professions and there started to be a lot of research on these things. And so extra gaming uh, has been found to improve both mental and cognitive health in older adults. And research has found that there's actually a dosage is that if you want to sustain cognitive benefit, also an executive functioning and processing speed from extra gaming, that didn't matter what type, it was a whole review of different types of extra games. So there's not one is that, and there's that that's good. So it's just about finding whichever one works for you that about 12 weeks of at least 60 minutes a week uh, contributed to significant cognitive benefits. And so there's actually a, a recommended dosage for extra gaming. And so the Nintendo Wii is great because that also permeated the, the rehabilitation sciences. And you, people use it for stroke and people use it for aging and dementia and multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's. And so I lost weight as a kid off Dance Dance Revolution. I was video mm-hmm. game addicted. Mm-hmm. And then I used that you know process, that motivation to get active and lose weight and get me into fitness. And so I'm still doing this. Um, and so I'm just doing it in a different modality. I personally don't have a Wii, but a lot of uh, patients I still talk to that are 60 or older happen to still have one in their living room. And when I educate them about the benefits, they, they turn it back on um, or they go out and buy one or they, they ask their, their kids for <laughs> theirs that they don't use anymore. The mm-hmm. Xbox Connect is another one. Um, okay. There's also mobile extra gaming and there's also virtual reality. So the Oculus Quest 2 is probably the latest and greatest. It's an all-in-one virtual reality headset. And the AARP actually did uh, a, ga- a game that consists of different brain training and meditation and exercise experiences on the Oculus Quest. And it's also, it's, it's similarly gener- intergenerational uh, as you described the Wii. And also as you just described the Wii, you can do dance, you can do tennis, you can do fitness, you can do meditation, you can do Tai Chi, but this is immersive. And so I wouldn't say one is better than the other. I have my preference, but mm-hmm. there's all sorts of ways to experience extra gaming. And it's just a nice way to check off that box of the neuromotor category because it has these elements of simultaneous cognitive and motor activity. Um, and you know, as do sports, dance, or martial arts, but these extra games are very general in terms of their cognitive goals. These types of games don't say, okay, I'm gonna address your memory. You could, you could theorize that, you know, we tennis is working on your hand-eye coordination and reaction time. And so there's actually clinical versions of this. And this is what I do at the Pacific Brain Health Center is we have a program called the Fit Brain Studio and it's clinical exergaming. So we have big walls and reaction lights and virtual reality. But if you have a balance problem with a memory problem, we're working on those two things. So that's not a general exergame. That's called a specific exergame. So we're using what we might call digital medicine to address specific deficits physically and cognitively at the same time. One of the things that you do, I know, is you develop kind of a plan for um, cognition and for, for brain health. What what are, in addition to extra gaming, because you re- refer to, to extra gaming as being a solution uh, that, that you use, what are some of the other clinical solutions that are available for um, cognitive health and, and to prevent cognitive decline? Yeah, extra gaming is just a nice 
uh, way to check off that neuromotor category. Once again, it's not for everybody. And some people say, I'd prefer to take a Zumba class in which go for it. Uh, you can do more than one thing in that neuromotor category, absolutely. Um, when, I, when we say clinical, um, I, I think clinical is a word I don't like too much. And I don't mean to be picky, Paul, but clinical, when we hear clinical, that kind of feels like we can't access it on our own. And I'm more about the strategies that you can because you're with yourself all of your life. And I don't like to create dependency on other services. I like to, to, to help people go towards self-efficacy. And so strategies, um, you know, in, in these strategies, you know, you can work with a physical therapist in a clinical setting or in the home that is encouraged. Right. But what are the other behaviors that we talked about earlier when it comes to cognitive reserve that also contribute to health? So Mediterranean diet or the mind diet, which is a combination of the DASH diet, which is a diet for hypertension and the Mediterranean diet that has been studied. So the mind diet seems to have a lot of good evidence uh, from a dietary perspective for improving brain health. Um, you know, sleep quality and sleep quantity. When I talk to a lot of people about this, they say, I have no problem with sleep. And then I say, how do you know? <laughs> You're unconscious most of the night. And so people look at the time they go to bed and the time they wake up and how they feel. And most people, not, well, I don't want to say most people, a lot of people have undiagnosed sleep apnea or sleep obstructive breathing, where it's not actual sleep apnea, but the breathing, the oxygen delivery is not efficient to the brain, um, or it's diagnosed and they're doing nothing about it. But individuals with that, uh, with a diagnosis of sleep apnea or sleep disorder breathing, should we work with the sleep doctor to get a CPAP machine, a continuous airway pressure machine to help deliver oxygen to the brain during sleep? It's incredibly important. And if it's not controlled, it can significantly contribute to cognitive decline. Um, and there's various, I think it's a different podcast, maybe for a different expert, but there's various sleep hygiene behaviors that you can do to improve your sleep quality and quantity, everything from in the environment, like temperature regulation to changing things in your head, uh, psychologically of relaxation to supplementation, to, uh, changing the timing of your exercise and your wake and sleep schedule and your eating schedule. There's all sorts of ways to improve that sleep quality of quant and quantity. And then, you know, being engaged in purposeful activity, friends, family, community, all of that's incredibly important. So all of those things are encouraged um, when we're talking about brain health. Well, Ryan Glad, what a pleasure it's been to talk with you today. I, I really just have one final question. We've talked a little bit about, you know, kind of emotional balance and, and stress in the brain. We've talked a little bit about, you know, keeping ourselves intellectually engaged, certainly uh, brain vitality and exercise. The pandemic has wiped out a lot of those things for us. What advice would you give to our audience about kind of keeping the improvement going in a slow yet steady manner? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I'd love to figure that out for myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. In, you I'm know, asking for me too. Yeah, I mean, as a health and fitness <laughs> yeah. professional, there's this additional guilt complex of being a victim of that. Um, but, you know, I think the reason I feel that way, and I think the reason a lot of people feel that way, is that they're comparing themselves now to what they were doing before the pandemic. And if they're not doing what they were doing before, they're a failure, or they're weak, or they don't have the willpower, or there's no point. Um, or the expectations are too high, right? And so I just look at this like behave, lifestyle behavior rehabilitation. If, imagine you had a behavioral stroke, 
and you need to slowly rehab yourself. And when I say slowly, meaning it takes time, the level of intensity of your efforts is up to you. Some people are very intrinsically motivated. Some people want to go fast. Some people need to go slow. Everyone has their preferences of the speed of their behavior change. Some people will hear this and like, I'm doing it all. Some people hear this and like, okay, I'll walk a little faster, right? So everyone's on a different level there. And I think we need to appreciate that and, and welcome that uh, and hold space for the people that are in the space they're in. Um, and so comparing your, yourself to your previous ideal or to the ideal of others is a dangerous game. It's helpful in the sense that you know where you stand and where you might need to go, but it's not helpful if you're impatient and you feel you need to be there right now. And so we just need to look at this like a rehabilitation plan where we're putting the stairs in place to get to that second level of the building versus trying to jump up to the second level of the building without the stairs. That's not very practical. What are those stairs behaviorally that you need to build? And are you building those stairs by yourself? Are you building them with friends or family or a health and fitness professional, your doctor maybe? Who can you bring in to help build these stairs? And the more support you have to build the stairs, the faster and more sustainably they'll be built. So I'll, I'll leave it at that metaphor, <laughs> is that we, we just want to build the stairs and the speed and the way you which in, the, in which you do that is completely up to you. Ryan Glatt. Uh, brain health coach at the Brain Health Center in Pacific, uh, actually in Santa Monica on the Pacific Coast. What a beautiful place to work, I'm, I'm sure, Ryan Gladwell. Indeed. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. You know, as this subject changes, as we, we all learn more about it, we'd, we'd love to have you back and talk more about it because I know our audience will be interested on an ongoing basis. Appreciate it. I promise I'll have more coffee before that happens. Oh, no, you, you were great. You were great. Thank you for your time today, and we will definitely have you back. Thanks so much. My thanks to NordVPN and Inside Tracker for sponsoring today's show. Please check out our show notes for details on both sponsors and please support our show sponsors. My thanks to Ryan Glatt for his generous time, expertise, and depth of preparation today. Of course, my thanks to you, my wonderful, not old, better show audience. Please be safe, stay well, politely promote vaccinations to those not yet vaccinated, and let's talk about better, the not old, better show. Thanks, everybody.